The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hey listeners, it's no secret that the Holding Short podcast has been going on for a while now. In fact, we were really pleased recently when in this past March, we hit our 50th episode and got to have this sort of moment with ourselves of looking back on everything we've accomplished since starting the podcast in January of 2021. A few different times over the course of us putting this podcast together, we've gotten requests from guests specifically asking to have either Cameron or I be the guest on the show and sort of turn the table a little bit and have us be the one in the hot seat as opposed to a guest that we choose. Um, In sort of a celebration of the fact that we've recently passed our 50th episode, noting that it's been an interesting time, and also noting the sort of expressed interest of our listeners, we decided to change this up a little bit. And so for the very first time, we have Karen Bogoff, the producer of the show, who is going to be the guest this week. And I will jump into explaining a little bit more about him before we get going today. Cameron Bokoff is a Canadian aircraft maintenance engineer, as well as a private and glider pilot. First exposed to aviation at local flying breakfast down the road from his family's farm in eastern Ontario, Cameron found airplanes fascinating from a young age. Soon after joining his local squadron of the Royal Canadian Air Cadets, a glider flight cemented his desire to fly. With that goal in mind, Cameron took his squadron's ground school every year, as well as participating in summer courses. His hard work paid off, and he earned and successfully completed the glider and power scholarships with the cadet program. Cameron attended Canador College in North Bay, Ontario, where he completed the two-year aviation technician aircraft maintenance course. Following graduation, he went on to work in private and flight school maintenance roles. Through that work, he was able to gather the experience necessary to earn an AME license with an M1 rating. Since earning this rating in 2018, Cameron has participated in many training and continuing education opportunities to build himself for the future. In late 2021, Cameron made the move to his first airline job, where he is working towards earning his M2 rating. In his free time, Cameron enjoys fishing, shooting sports, and hopes to expand his capabilities as a canoeist and hiker. He currently also volunteers on the board of the Webster Memorial Trophy Competition, Canada's top general aviation pilot competition. And as mentioned, he is the producer and editor of our show. I truly could not be more excited to have him joining me today, live in real time, not having to listen to it again, over with timestamps, but here in the moment with me. Welcome, Cameron. Hey, thanks for having me. I mean, I'm saying welcome, but as if you're not here all the time, as if you don't listen, as if you're not an active participant in the show, but welcome to sort of being in the hot seat. Yeah. um, I usually get to listen to everyone and uh, I get none of the social anxiety of meeting any of our guests. (laughs) I just get to sit behind a desk and be like, oh, that's cool. Um, So, so it's interesting to actually be interviewed, which I've, I've done once before I was on flair. Um, like early on in the pandemic, but uh, yeah, it's, I think life's changed for a lot of people since then. So I get to do another one now. Yeah, no, I was even mindful that, yeah, you'd previously been with Riley for the the Flare podcast. And that was, I think our first, even as friends foray into one of us doing something public like that and podcasting. And yeah, our lives are, I would say pretty different than April, 2020. So it's a yeah, good to sort of catch up, check in and see where you are now. So we'll jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? 
I blame flying breakfasts for being interested in airplanes. Uh, I grew up outside of a small town in Eastern Ontario that has a, a little grass strip still does. Um, but they had a, they had flying breakfasts every year and, uh, you know, we'd wait for dad to be done chores coming in from the barn. Uh, he'd get himself cleaned up, jump in the van, go down for pancakes. And uh, it was a pretty active little community. Eastern Ontario is kind of cool for a lot of small aviation things mm-hmm. um, and sort of into Western Quebec as well. Um, but yeah, we did those for, for a few years. Uh, unfortunately, they had to stop having it with different... Uh, different regulations came into effect and a bunch of other things. And they decided it was too much of a liability, I guess. Um, there's still other flying breakfast in the area that I go to because I like breakfast. Uh, and for some reason, bacon cooked by the thousand slices is just really good. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, as a kid, um, thought airplanes were really cool. As most young boys do, you get super into World War II books. Um and yeah, so I read, uh, I think I read just about every book in the library, um, ordered a bunch in. Uh, I used to bike like 10K to go to the library some summer days, um, just pick up new books. Um, and then I hit the age of 12. And uh, one of my friends had mentioned the Air Cadets at school. I turned 12 before he did, so I joined first, so I win. Um but yeah, like the week after I turned 12, I became an air cadet. Uh, two weeks later, something like that, we had our first glider for mill flights. And I guess for like two years, they had all been weathered out. Hmm. Uh, mine was the first one that we actually flew. And yeah, I got to I got to go on a glider flight for like 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Um, anyone who's done it knows that it like either totally flips a switch for you or you're just done with airplanes after that. But I did that, had a great time. Decided I was definitely doing more of that. Um, that was right at the end of their season too. So um, I had to wait for uh, the next year to start uh, to really get going on anything airplanes. I couldn't do a summer course that year or anything. So uh, next year, the Air Cadet started. Uh, I decided at the age of 12 that I was taking ground school, even though I couldn't get into any flying program until I was 16. I ended up taking ground school every year because I'm like that. One of the summer courses I did was also ground school. So by the time I got to glider, I had done ground school five times. Um, And for anyone who thinks I must be super smart, I'm pretty average. Uh, (laughs) I, I have not memorized from the ground up or anything like that. I just did ground school a bunch of times. Um, But yeah, I got into glider when I was 16. Uh, Then I had a year off uh, of doing summer courses. And then I got into the power program uh, my last year as a cadet. Um, Both of which were amazing. I I credit the cadet program for maintaining flying scholarships. um, And I hope those continue. and then, yeah, I was home for like two weeks and then I went off to AME school uh, two years there and then I was in the industry. And the rest is history. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, I, uh, yeah, I got a job like a month after school and I, I've, I've been in since. 
I'm always so envious of, and it's going to sound so maybe silly in the grand scheme of things, but I'm always so envious of any air cadet that got to do stuff with gliders. I was in the air cadets for years and I somehow never have even saw a glider in person. I don't know how I managed to miss out on every glider opportunity, um, but I did, did take the ground school with the uh, with my air cadet squadron. We were a big squadron, so you could not just take it every year. You had to sort of wait your turn. And that was where I learned how to read a METAR. And years later, I realized, oh, that's what we were working on. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, like my squadron, we had nights when I had a flight of one kind of thing. Um, I think, I think the highest I saw it was in the 30s, and the lowest was like 15, 16 of us, um, small, small town squadron. Uh, I, I think my squadron, when I was still part of it, was around 150, and I mean scholarships were you, you had to fight for them because you were competing against so many other kids, even just in your own squadron, let alone um, throughout the province or your region. Yeah, um, I I always found it really fascinating when I met people at summer camps they're like yeah we had like 150 kids and uh you know our ground school had 20 people in it and you had to like you had to get a certain mark in ground school to even be able to leave the squadron and do the entrance exam uh for glider or power or whatever you were going to do and I was like oh no I passed ground school there was four of us we met upstairs at the legion once a week um and now I'm here <laughs> Yeah, I even remember having to get a certain mark on a test just in my own squadron to pass ground school to go do the test to then get a certain mark again so that I was eligible to do the interview for uh, for glider. And I think it's like that when you get up to a squadron that's that big, they're trying to find ways to make it fair. And they really looked at, are you involved in band? Are you involved in drill team? Uh, I always was sort of confused <laughs> when I met other cadets that said like yeah there's like 20 of us in my squad and I think like well no wonder you're here yeah. <laughs> you weren't fighting 300 other people for this uh like we didn't have a band we didn't have a drill team um we had a range team which I was on um but but yeah the 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 national programs it was it was always the same thing of uh do whatever qualification you have to do with the squadron do the test do the interview wait a few months, get told whether or not you're going. And then if you had any backup options, were you accepted for those? Oh, and there, uh, there was an essay as well. There was an essay that went to your interview board. So you mentioned that you did both your glider and your ultimately your power, which is our sort of regular fixed wing license um, through the air cadets. Uh, what was it like to go through their programming? Because it's a little bit different than doing it through sort of a local flight school. Um, for glider, it's very different. For power, it is um, a condensed version of your local flight school, I'll say. Um, and I've I've done some civilian gliding, so I do have a little bit a little bit of a frame of reference for uh, some of the bigger differences. Uh, obviously, the entrance part was interesting. Um, going through, you know, tests, essays, interviews doing the exam, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was pretty interesting. It's also quite interesting to like go to school and 
other people are on the hockey team or something like that. And they're traveling for that, or they're doing whatever other sport. And they're like, Oh, what did you do this weekend? I'm like, Oh, I did an exam to try to get into a flying program. I don't have a driver's license, but I'm going to fly planes this summer. <laughs> um, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when I, when I got my glider license, I did not, I, I had a G1. Um, so I could drive myself to the airport with my mom in the passenger seat. Uh, and then she'd take the car home for the day and I'd hang out at the airport, um, which was a great time. Uh, anyways, the, the program itself, I quite enjoy. I can see how a lot of people wouldn't because in six weeks, you are doing the entirety of ground school. You are writing the TC exam. You are doing the entire flight program, which is heavily regimented. Um, and you're doing your flight tests uh, and prog tests in that. So, you know, you have a, you have a pre-solo, you have a pre-flight, you have um, all of those built in as well with um, not necessarily your instructor, but a check pilot. Um, their, their hierarchy in the cadet program is a little bit different yeah. um, when it comes to flying. I quite liked the, the idea of um, there's you about 80 something friends. Uh, you all live together. You study together. You're on the flight line together. The only thing you really talk about are airplanes. Um, that is your entire life. That like t-shirt of eat, sleep, fly, repeat. That's what you do. And that worked for me because it's, it's an, like, it's an immersive learning environment. It can also be extremely overwhelming and like we, especially in Glider, I saw people who got overwhelmed and had to go home. Um, again, there, there is a pressure there that um, if you self-regulate stress a certain way, it works. But if you don't self-regulate stress in a way that allows the rest of the program to exist with you in it, you're not staying. And they weren't cruel about that. They'd give you your chance. They'd cancel you. They'd say, okay, you had trouble here. Let's sit down. Let's talk about it. Let's try a reflight. Let's try a reflight with a different instructor. Um, and if that goes poorly, you're going in with the chief instructor. So if you're already stressed, you're now probably getting more stressed as you go on. And then you get to that, that end flight and, you know, that night you're saying goodbye to everyone and packing your stuff um which is harsh but like the way it goes i have the problem of being probably a little too relaxed about a lot of things um so like the the stress of it was okay for me and the learning environment was good and i just flew airplanes yeah no i'm even just sort of thinking back to the last air cadet course I did. It would have been the summer that I was 16 and I was sent to North Bay. I was on one of the national courses. So you weren't with people, uh, you were not with other kids that were just sort of even from your region. It was kids from all over Canada. And I remember getting just so, so excited. I remember uh, one of the highlights from that summer is that we had one guy who was from Prince George. And that was the year that Will and Kate had their first child and it was Prince George. <laughs> And we all just sort of kept calling him Princey the rest of 
the, the time we were there. He was a little prince. He was super nice guy. I can't remember his name, but they are exactly that. It is a comprehensive, fully immersive learning environment. You do not do anything other than talk about planes and aviation and the air cadets and the Canadian forces. It's just, and because you want to, and you're surrounded by all these other kids that also want to, and you probably don't have that in your day-to-day at high school or even in your own squadron. It's just this completely different experience and the friendships that you make on those courses can really stand the test of time because it's such a, not a unique experience, but you maybe have not had an experience fully like that. And especially if you're 15, 16 years old, even 17, you've probably not gone away. You've definitely not gone away to post-secondary yet. So you're not even sort of used to sort of having to kind of study and live sort of with a group of your peers that way before. So yeah, they're very interesting courses, but if you're, if you're not ready for that experience and if it's just not for you, it's going to be long. Yeah. The first course an air cadet does is generally two weeks. Um, the basic training, I think they've, they've changed the name of it. There've been a lot of updates since I've been in. This is like, yeah, this is uh, even the course that I took. I don't think the name exists anymore. Yeah. I think, I think I'm at a decade since my first license more. No, it's gotta be more. Am I had 11 years. I think so. I think you're, I think so. you're up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, my first course was in like 07. Um, and yeah, two weeks, first time going like for that amount of time away from home. And again, like we were, we were like, we're all sent, uh, you get your, like uh, your calling card, your little bell telephone prepaid card and dial oh, in yeah. the call. I forgot home. about those. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you, you do the thing, like all the kids, like you stand in line at the pay phones and then you go and you call home like, hi mom, hi dad. Yes, I'm fine. Yes, I know what vegetables look like. I've been eating them. Yes. Um, like do that. And for like, for some kids, it's very stressful. Like you're 12 years old and you've never done that before. Um, for some of them, it was totally natural because they've been doing like sleepaway summer camps since they were like six or seven. Which was more my yeah. experience. I was totally um, fine to be away. Yeah. Uh, the, the rural urban divide certainly exists there. It <laughs> tended to be the city kids that were doing that. Getting back into it, though, I would like to include this because you mentioned that you, you called that guy Princey. One of the things that happened at Glider was everyone ended up with some form of name, whether they liked it or not. Um, and uh, at the end of it, like, you order your, your jacket. So like, it's got the, the big letters on the back. So everyone knows you went to that course and you got like wings on the front because you're 16 and you think you're the coolest thing. Because you are. Oh yeah, <laughs> obviously. Um, got to get that central region gliding school windbreaker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, my year, we got blue ball caps, the CRGS on the front and on the back, you could get a name. And I got to the front of the line to order my hat and, uh, and my jacket and all that. And uh, they said, oh, what name's going on the back? And I was like, oh, I was just going to put my last name. And the instructor sitting behind the desk goes, you know, we all call you gloves, right? And I was like, okay, you can put that on the back of my hat. And it was for a good reason, because I recognized like running line for six weeks. 
you know, we're running with braided rope. We're pushing airplanes. We're doing all that stuff. I was like, I'm bringing work gloves. And at the start of the program, my CO made me write out on a sheet of paper and sign it that I was not going to get mad when I got the tan line and looked like I had Mickey Mouse hands. Um, and it turns out from that point on, they called me gloves. Um, and now that's, I've accepted it now. Um, so if you look at my, like my Instagram handle or anything like that, it's, it's, it's all gloves now. So that was another thing that came out of Glider. <laughs> yeah, no, you, it's funny, sort of the things that stick with you from Glider. I remember even the last name, the, the nickname that I was given. Um, yeah, it's uh, not from Glider, just on different uh, cadet courses. I think there was always sort of the novelty that I was usually uh, predominantly Anglophone going on these entirely French courses. Um, and so people were always confused with how to pronounce my name. And then my, my entire voice in general, uh, that was always <laughs> a funny thing for different people. Um, thinking back to sort of how you had the, uh, rather the glider program, which is sort of this condensed six week program. How does that compare to doing sort of your power, your PPL license through the air cadets? So having the glider first obviously was an advantage. Um, I ended up on power with people that had done glider first and people who had having glider was nice. It did cut my time by a few hours. Um, and it gave me a little more, a little more of a frame of reference on just the physical handling of an airplane. Um, and like I did my entire PPL on 150s and 152s. So they're light and rickety, just like a glider would be. So yeah, I had that advantage doing power I ended up doing my license in like four weeks, effectively. Um, you fly twice a day, um, either in the morning or the afternoon. You're whichever half of the day you are not flying, you are in class. And if you're not in an airplane, you're either briefing um, or studying the next lesson before your brief or your post brief. And then you go home at night and you study. And then you wake up in the morning and you have breakfast and you talk about the stuff that you studied the night before with the guys, uh, get in the van, go to the airport. Um, I did my, my power course at, uh, we stayed at Durham college in Oshawa and we flew out of, um, Durham flight center, which is part of enterprise airlines. Yeah. So I, I had the advantage of having glider first. It was still that again, like the, a similar pressure of, you're doing 40 hours of ground school. So at the end of week four, when you're writing your test, you have just done 40 hours of ground school straight. You're driving downtown Toronto to write your test. If you fail it, you're probably going home. Doesn't matter how well you've been flying. If that doesn't go well, out you go. Um, same thing on the flying side. Like if, if you made it to the point where you're like 15 hours in and you're not solo, they're going to start asking questions because there is a certain amount of time budgeted for you to do your PBL in. And if you're not meeting those marks, you're not staying. Yeah. I, I mean, I did my PPL through a flight college and going to a flight school and there were still expectations about when you would get something done or sort of where you were compared to your, your peers who had started with you. Um, no one was sort of looking at us though and going, okay, well, 
someone just sold it in 12 hours, you're at 15 and you haven't sold yet. So let's start having some, some difficult, some of the tougher conversations that you don't want to have. We were allowed sort of to have that variance. So I, and that was already, and that alone was stressful. So I can very much appreciate being 17, 18 years old, knowing that this is probably one of your first big experiences away from home doing something like this and kind of having someone reminding you that you're maybe not sort of stacking up the way you're supposed to or the way that they have planned that you will against your peers. I think that would have added a, I understand why it's that way, but man, that would be hard to experience. Yep. Um, and if you don't do the task card, you might get to redo that one task card. And if you keep having to redo task cards, they're going to run out of the budget for you. Yeah. I mean, you sort of think about it with like the time, the budgeted time for it, knowing, okay, it's the middle of the summer, it's the afternoons, what's the weather going to be like? You're probably going to have a prob 40 of thunderstorms because <laughs> it's the summer in Ontario. Um, trying to yeah, be mindful of the weather, trying to be mindful of just the different things that can happen, maintenance. Um, but yeah, it, it sort of you as a student who's, even though you're there on a scholarship, being mindful that, oh, there's a budget and you're not the one in charge of it but it's going to impact your life and you kind of don't really get a say or you kind of can't contribute. Yep. Um, for me, power was really good. I only broke one airplane. Um, they blamed it on me because it happened while I was flying, but the alternator failed. Uh, actually, it was a generator because it was a 150 um, <laughs> before I get called out for that. Uh, so that, that was one delay for me. Other than that, I don't think I had a weather day during power. I had a couple during glider. I have some great photos of all of us going, oh, we have an afternoon off and then a bunch of us studying and then a bunch of us sleeping in airplanes. As you mentioned, you went from doing your power and then immediately starting post-secondary. And for that, for your AME training, you attended Canador College. How did you choose Canador in terms of going for these studies? Um, I maintained that I am an AME by accident. Um, originally, I was going to be an auto mechanic. And in grade 12, my first semester, I did, uh, it was a full day co-op. So I worked in an auto shop. And then I attended St. Lawrence College in Cornwall um, to do my level one automotive apprenticeship. Uh, and then I worked in the shop for the rest of that semester. And going through the last semester of high school I was like yeah I'm gonna you know find a job work as an auto mechanic be a tradesperson um I think that's a fair life for me and my shop teacher just kept saying listen dude you have a friggin pilot's license like uh you do all the stuff with airplanes you work really clean um all of the detailed jobs I keep giving to you uh please like look at being an aircraft mechanic. I've sent other kids to this program up in Canada. They got a really nice thing. You know, some of these guys, it's a small town, you know, all these guys. Um, <laughs> and like, please just go look at it. And for like, for months, the man would not quit. And in April, and yeah, like you're supposed to apply to college in like January or February, right? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. So in April, I'm like, okay, screw it. I'm going to shut the man up. Uh, I'll apply to the school. You get, I think, three free on the program, and then you have to pay a fee to apply to more. But I picked three. Canador, because he told me. 
Um, and then I went on websites and I looked at, I think my other two were Centennial and Sue. Sue or Fanshawe? Can't remember. But I, I really wanted Canador because Mr. Lowe said it was good. It was good. So I applied on the Monday. On the Wednesday, I get an email going, you've been accepted to Canador College for this program. And I was like, huh, neat. I should probably like research that. Uh, so mom and I drove up. It's about a five hour drive. Um, we got a tour. We had to like specifically request a tour and the guy had to come out special for us because it wasn't tour day. It wasn't any other day. I was just some dude in the middle of April that wanted to see the place. Um, the campus has gotten bigger since then. Uh, but even back then, clean hangar, clean shops. Um, it's just an impressive building. It really is. Uh, they have a lot of really good equipment. They have a lot of really good airplanes. Um, and it was the, like, it was the kind of place that I stood there and I went, yeah, like spinning a wrench, spinning a wrench. If I'm happy spinning a wrench on a car, I'm probably going to be happier on an airplane. I already like airplanes. Um, let's do this. So I accepted it and, uh, like they, they sent me like the welcome package and we got to get you into res because you're like three months behind on this. Um, it's one of the older programs in Canada. They started in like a barn on the other hill of North Bay. And then they were in the old Bowmark base for a bit. Um, and then they built this campus on, uh, on the airfield, uh, which is like sort of above that massive bunker. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an old program. There's a lot of pride in that school. There's a lot of pride in those professors. Um, they feel, and they express that they feel that they have a big responsibility for sort of like passing the torch down. So it was, it was really apparent that like, these people really care. It's not just a job with a good pension. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't just some school to them. A lot of them went to that school. Some of them remember being in the barn. Some of them remember going up to the Bowmark base. Um, and yeah, they, they came back because that school was good to them. They're going to be good to the school and the next generation. And that was always the one that I knew of having again, spent some time there and getting to be on that campus. But it, it sort of, to me, is always a testament to the alum and the community of the alumni of that school that they are still in touch with each other. And it's not only, it. I feel like everyone who seems to be, from my understanding and my perspective, anyone who's a Canada alum, there's, they sort of feel a responsibility of what that means to be an alum. They sort of still feel in many ways that they kind of represent the school. I always find it so interesting that there's sort of a loyalty and professionalism that comes from being a grad that you want to uphold and maintain that, um, that reputation for the school. I've met different maintenance engineers that have trained there and everyone takes a lot of pride in being part of that community, being a part of being an alum. And also, again, sort of the responsibility of doing good work and passing that on to other people. It's, it's, I always find that so interesting. It's really, it's really admirable. Yeah. Um, I, I still highly, highly recommend the school to anyone looking. Um, and yeah, I've, like, I've met people who went to Canada or 20 years ago um which is not that far beyond me actually now um 
Funny but, how time does that, right? Yeah. <laughs> 20 <laughs> years ago might not be like a big enough number. Uh, but like I, I've met people that have been through every stage of Canador and they're all, uh, there's a certain set of values mm-hmm. that I think they try to raise us with. So as you mentioned, there's many different schools that an AME can go to. There's different ways of becoming a maintenance engineer. How does your training at Canador compare to some of the other options? I know we've had different maintenance engineer guests before, and everyone's path seems to be a little bit different. So again, love Canador. Uh, I think the program I took was perfect for me. Uh, in hindsight, I probably should have taken a three-year Um the three options for AME training in Canada are sort of like um, ICS, which is correspondence. There's a few other correspondence courses you can do. I hesitate to recommend them in most cases. However, I recommend them wholeheartedly for pilots. Um, I think it's about 900 bucks. That includes the books you will get trained on uh, you will get a much better training on systems, structures, everything. It's a wonderful tool to have in your back pocket. It probably won't get you hired as an AME except in like some smaller cases. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some companies that advertise it as a route. You hmm. will be paid very poorly as a first-year apprentice doing correspondence courses. If you can afford it, go to college. And I would say if you can afford it, go to college and take a three-year program. The two-year program was great. Um, It sets me up for an M license, or rather an M rating. A three-year program would give me M experience and S, or M experience and E. S being S being structures, E being avionics. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only other rating that exists. So there's M1, M2, S, E, and then B for balloons. Um, I would very much like to collect a balloon rating. It's kind of hard to get. I just want to have it. <laughs> I always want to, when I think about people with sort of all the different ratings, I always think of uh, Martha King and I think, well, she can do it. Then clearly I can. So, I mean, who doesn't want to get an ATPL in a balloon? Yeah. Like there's, there's like um, a guy I used to work with, used to call it collecting Pokemon uh, in his, uh, in his uh, aviation document. So, okay. We want to get to smells, ATPL. Like we, we want to do the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and that's how I look at it. I want, I have to go, when I finally have to renew my, uh, my book, my aviation booklet, I just want whoever the TC officer is to be like, wait, hold on. She did all of this. Like what a cool little lady. So that's yeah. always sort of, yeah, no, I, I understand. Yeah. Wanting to sort of acquire all of them. Is there yeah. not also a composite specialist or is that also sort of still within structures? That's under structures and, uh, you can collect less as an AME. Like I can't collect all of the letters. Um, mm. You can be an uh, either M rating and an E or an S. So you can be an M1E or an M2E or like an M2S or whatever. Um, but if you are an M1, M2, they will not issue you an E or an S rating because they consider the scope of either of those ratings to be included 
in having M1 and M2. You can only, uh, I would have to check the exact wording of this. And if you're a cars person, please go look. Um, this is not legal advice. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> Disclaimer. Disclaimer. <laughs> um, if you have an M1, M2 and you work for a shop that can do E or S work, there is an amount of work under E or S tasks that you can certify. It will most likely depend on a mixture of the Canadian Aviation Regulations and your AMO's maintenance policy manual. But there, there's, there's a certain line. You, you have a lot of rights of those specialties while not being them. Um, and the three-year program, in reality, you're probably not going to be an M1S or an M2S or whatever. You're probably going to go get an M1, M2 if you go that route. But having the extra background uh, is going to help you in certain shops. I'll say more in the M1 world and in general aviation where we tend to be uh, more jack of all tradey mm -hmm. than the larger organizations. Um, but like with the two-year, I'm still going to do an M1, M2 and be fine. Um, the three-year program just, you know, it's, it's extra knowledge. It's, it's an extra tool in the toolbox because um, we're doing maintenance metaphors. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I mean, that's very in keeping though with the advice that we've sort of shared back and forth with each other and from other guests of ours, which is that if you have the opportunity to do additional training, especially if you can afford it or if it's in an ideal world, free or being paid for you, um, then to definitely go and do that training because you never know when it might be helpful, especially if it's coming down to marketability or if you're in a smaller shop, hey, you're the person that has a background in um, avionics when someone else has no experience with that or only sort of limited, the limited scope that you get by just doing an M1 or just doing an M2. Um, so yeah, you never know. Yeah. Um, I wholeheartedly support continuing education uh, of basically any type. Uh, so uh, I've done courses from the Canadian Council for Aviation and Aerospace. Um, I have done courses from Cessna's own e-learning thing, which are free. Go do them. And I will, I will recommend them having known Cameron and having had them recommended to me. I will also recommend them to people because they are free and it doesn't hurt to learn a little bit more about the caravan yeah. and some of their systems. Yeah. Um, they have uh, caravan, uh, 182 turbo and the diesel, the J182T. Um, there is the HPSE, which is the high performance single engine line, which is everything 1996 onwards for the 172, 182, and 206. Uh, and then they have the uh, Corvallis TTX 350, 400, whichever name you know them by, um, as their own little maintenance familiarization course. Um, and they are marketed to pilots too. They don't, they sometimes distinguish with this course being maybe more helpful for someone who has a maintenance background or a pilot background. And some have the sort of the, the signifier for both that, hey, it doesn't hurt you as a pilot to know more, more in detail, but how sort of the TKS sweeping wing yeah. system works on the caravan. Yeah. Um, so I've, yeah, I've taken all of those. I'm currently taking uh, writing classes from the University of Calgary, working on a professional certificate in business and technical writing. Because a lot of the job as an AME, once you're licensed, is good writing and good communication. 
um, especially if you want to end up in upper management, Transport Canada, Transportation Safety Board, um, anything like that. Um, and it still bothers me to this day. If you're a pilot and you open up a logbook, I think you should see the word break written correctly. Because um, there's a right way and a wrong way. <laughs> um, well, it depends on what you're trying to, what break you're trying to talk yes. about. But the brakes on the airplane are not B-R-E-A-K-S. <laughs> yeah. And sort of touching on your point as well, I know when we had Alicia Sopal and Stephanie Angrand, who are both maintenance engineers on, they were joking of like, don't just say like, there was a weird sound or there was a weird noise or the seat was weird. Like, no, we need, we need more information than that. You don't need to get hyper, hyper specific. But if you can at least say there was a weird sound coming from this area, it was during this period of flight, we had, there was either this change that we had just done or there was no change, it came on unexpectedly. That if you as a pilot, I can also appreciate from the maintenance that your side can just write a little bit more information. It makes it easier for everyone. Yep. Um, being able to just, yeah, really, really get the message in in the right words quickly uh, helps a lot. Um, if you do have snags as well, take a video. Everyone's got a cell phone. Most of you have iPads as uh, an electronic flight bag. It helps. One of the other things I'll mention about being a maintenance engineer, from my understanding, is that there, there is the CARS exam. And it seems to be that no matter which way you become a maintenance engineer, at some point, you're going to have to write the CARS exam. What yep. is that experience like? How do you prepare for that exam? Um, so yeah, there's, there's a couple study books you can get for it. It's kind of odd. And I, I sort of think it should be like a frozen ATPL. Um, if you go to an accredited program, which Canada or and most of the colleges are, you don't have to do the technical exams. You just have to do the CARS exam. If you do the correspondence course and you want to get an AME license, you have to go do four technical exams and then the CARS exam. Um, there's also, there's also one for balloons. Um, <laughs> and all I'm hearing is that you really just want a balloon <laughs> license. Um, I don't ever want to fly in a hot air balloon, but I just want the damn license. Um, but it, like the, the cars exam itself, uh, get yourself a, a study book. There's uh, cars simplified was one that I have. And then there's cars for the AME. Um, cars for the AME is probably the one most people get. Uh, it's sold by Dueck. Um, read that twice, do the questions in it, go write the exam. Uh, the exam took me less than 15 minutes and I went over it twice. It's 50 questions. You do it on a computer. Um, again, I probably should have been more stressed about it. But I like I just went through, ticked the boxes, went through it again. Um, the standard rule of read the effing question twice applies. Um, yeah, because I, I walked in. I was working at a flight school at the time. I walked in with two pilots uh, who were writing their CPL. And they, they both showed up with their like little pilot uniforms and stuff because they're in one of those integrated programs. Um, and like they're wearing bars. Sure. Uh, anyways, we, we walk in, uh, you know, you talk to the front desk. They set you up at your computer. You get your note paper. Um, 
if you can, I would say try to memorize the numbering in part five of the cars because part five is the only part of the cars that doesn't make sense. That's what I wrote down. If you asked me to do it today, I probably couldn't because at that point in time, I had it like taped to the wall, like in the kitchen so I could read it while I was chopping vegetables or whatever. Um, like it was just in the house. Um, wrote that down really quick, did the exam, uh, which for anyone who's a pilot, it's the same system where you click your boxes. Um, it, it's pretty intuitive. Uh, I did it right when they changed a bunch of rules about licensing. So I had to confirm like, when were these questions written? Mm. Because the law changed three days ago <laughs> for like the validity period. And um, so I got one of the earlier tenure licenses and I don't have a photo on my AME license. Um, that changed right when I did mine. Mm. But yeah, I uh, walked out of the exam. I uh, asked for a temporary to be issued and the inspector that had gone through my logbook uh, was there. Um, so he looked at my score sheet, which is the same kind of score sheet you get as a pilot. Um, can't remember what mark I got. It was in the 90s. He called me a nerd and signed my uh, uh, signed my temporary. I paid my, uh, I think it's about 40 bucks for a temporary license and went home. So I, what I remember about this is that you had done exceptionally well on the exam and you had one of the highest marks of anyone you ever met until one of our guests. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember this because uh, the guest is Cassandra Hep. It um, is Cassandra, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's very cool. Um, the coolest. Everyone go listen yeah. to her episode after this. Yeah. Um, since then, because Laura and Cassandra had known each other before and Laura was like, you, you should meet Cass. Like you guys should hang out. Um, since then, I've never met Cass in person, but every now and again, we'll have a Zoom and just like hang out and talk about airplanes and like what's going on. Um, and yeah, she's extremely cool. But she said her mark in her episode and like I was sitting right next to my filing cabinet. I just hit pause and I, like opened up the filing cabinet. And was, ah, she beat me. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was fun. And I, I, I did like being called a nerd. That was, that was like a, a little moment of pride for me. <laughs> Presently, you work as an aircraft maintenance engineer with Air Inuit. What does a typical rotation look like for you? So I have, um, I do both days and nights. Um, the, we have sort of three categories of AME. We have uh, apprentices, and then licensed non-ACA and then ACA. Um, I'm a licensed non-ACA. Uh, and then, so I and the other apprentice on my rotation alternate doing nights and days. So yeah, I've done two rotations of days, one rotation of nights so far. I'm about to leave uh, for my second rotation of nights. Um, days, uh, Days you're with one senior AME and you're doing departures, um, a couple of turns. Uh, we'll get the 737 a couple times a day sometimes. So we do a, a quick walk around for them. Um, and we do all of our ground service equipment, de-ice, cart, everything like that. Uh, I don't do de-icing. That's done by our ground handlers, but I do have to service 
uh, our truck and uh, do all of the testing for de-ice fluid and everything like that every morning. Hmm. Um, if anything snags out, that becomes the immediate fire to put out uh, and we get to go immediately dive into manuals and have an airplane show up and have to turn it around. Um, that's happened a couple times. Those tend to be, to me, the most fun days. Um, I like, uh, I don't mind routine, but I do like a, a, a good bit of variety. Um, that shift is 6.30 in the morning until 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, nights, which so far I prefer, um, show up at, well, your shift starts at 4.30. You show up a little bit before then, and you work until 2.30 in the morning or later if needed. Um, I've worked as late as like five ish, um, 5am. Yes. Um, nights tend to be the heavy work. So hopefully everything is flying all day, every day. Uh, and we can do everything we need at night. So, uh, DI's line checks, um, component replacements, any scheduled maintenance, all that stuff. Uh, that tends that tends to be night shift. Night shift is also a bigger crew, so we have four or five. Uh, we also keep an avionics on with us at nights, um, and yeah, so everything comes back uh, sort of staggered from the day, and we do. We have one dash eight spot in the hangar. Sometimes we'll work outside in the winter. Uh, when it's milder out, we'll do a little more. So if we just have a di to do or just have an l check to do, um, we'll do it outside. Um, we do also get a twin otter once a week, um, for a day or two, depending on what it needs. Um, and that tends to be a little bit of a busier night because we're splitting the team at that point. Generally we'll bring in uh, dash eight. Everyone jumps on it. We'll each pick a section of the DI or hand a snag, um, work on it as a team and then get it out and get the next one. I quite like that, um, that method of doing things. Uh, we rotate through who cooks supper. Um, so we don't all have to like try to sort out a meal in the middle of the night. We'll cook everything together. Uh, that's sort of our main break. Get home around 3 a.m. It's about a half hour drive back to town at the airport I'm based at. Uh, sleep until about midday. Um, have breakfast about the same time as you would in college. And <laughs> uh, get a few hours to yourself and then go back to work. So I know you sort of touched on some of the different aircraft you have. How does it compare working on such a different types of aircraft when you've previously worked in a school where they were maybe more similar? The 7-3 will only overnight at our base um, for cargo or problems. Hmm. Uh, I've seen both. <laughs> um, for the most part, we're a cargo base. Uh, we're sort of the last stop on the road in northern Quebec. Um and then everything flies north from us in Dash 8 300s. We also keep a Dash 8 100 in a combi config um, to do some charter work, things like that. Uh, so yeah, most of the work I do is on Dash 8 300s, a little bit on Dash 8 100s. Uh, and then the 737 is mostly a walk around and maybe some like startup at the beginning of the day or helping to put it to bed at night. Depending on the base, for Air Inuit, you will work on different airplanes. I mentioned the Twin Otter. Um, 
our twin otter is based in Kujarapik. Uh, I'll also apologize if I mispronounce any of the names. I'm still learning. <laughs> um, so our twin otter is based in Kujarapik. They do a triangle of villages with twin otter uh, for service as well as uh, medevac and camp work. So they do run tundra tires. We do run ours on skis. Um, and our base, we also swap out one AME per rotation with uh, Pavernatuk, um, and they do the turns for the jets and uh, cargo and passenger dash eights that go through Pavernatuk. We have Montreal, which works on everything um, in our fleet. Us, which we can work on everything, but mostly dash, uh, dash eight 300s, 100s, and Twin Otter. Uh, Pavernatuk is a bit of everything. Uh, Saluit is a bit of everything, but more, sorry, a bit of everything, but not the jet. Um, Kujuak has the entire fleet, but usually only has uh, Twin Otter, King Air, and Dash 8 overnights. Um, and then the 737s we have, we do have 200s. Um, so if you're into gravel kits and really loud airplanes, mm -hmm. we got those and we do have a 300 as well. So it, I mean, again, sort of depends on where you are. It depends on sort of day shift, night shift, comparing sort of the workload and the type of work that you're doing. But it sounds like there's a lot of good variety, especially coming from sort of a, an M1 background. Yep. Um, and it's it's an M1, M2 kind of place. So if you want both licenses, um, I think it's wise to go after both licenses. Uh, if you're working all airline your entire life, yeah, an M2 works. Um, obviously, my background is like private maintenance and flight schools and stuff like that. So I came through so many 172s. Um, <laughs> uh, but like even even in that, I like variety no matter what shop I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, some of the flight schools are better than others for that. If they do private maintenance, you're probably going to get a little more of everything. But yeah, just like bashing on 172s all day is not fun to me. Um, I think an M1, M2 is a good thing. A lot of Northern operators are really good for that. Um, Arianowitz is a great example of that. And they will, like, they will work with you to help you get the experience you need to get both licenses. Now, having done M1 work, having an M1 license, and you're currently working towards your M2 apprenticeship, what is sort of the variety of the work like going just from sort of M1 to M2? M M1 work versus M2 work used to be a little bit different. And then there was the gray area, thanks to the Americans coming up with uh, Special Federal Aviation Regulation 41C, which was a commuter category of airplanes that were certified to uh, FAR 23, which included stuff like the Metroliner, uh, the bigger King Airs, um beach 1900 stuff like that uh there is a non-exhaustive list online and it used to be you could use those to get tasks either towards an m1 or an m2 but not both so if i worked on like a king air 350 i could say i'm using the king air 350 as an m2 aircraft which it sort of isn't but it counted um the line is 12,500 pounds um, and uh, anything non-jet thrust, M1, anything jet thrust is M2. Um, there's some caveats to that. 
again, it's if, if you're a cars kind of person, it's a fun read. Um, that's changing because you now have signing authority on SFAR-41C airplanes with an M1, you can no longer claim tasks on those airplanes towards an M2. Okay. I think I, I think I follow that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that category ends at around 19,000 pounds and 19 passengers, if I remember correctly. Um, so a lot of like little commuter stuff. So for us, the King Air and Twin Otter are M1 and everything else is M2. I want to say the bigger difference between what I've done previously and what I'm doing now uh, is jet fuel because yeah. I have I have a lot of piston experience. Um, I have a little, like from before this, I had a little bit of King Air time. Um, like I did a gear swap and some other stuff. Um, I have washed a lot of private jets, uh, <laughs> but I didn't, uh, didn't get time on them. So a lot, a lot of the new things to me are trying like going, going back to school in my head and saying, oh yeah, this is turbine engine theory, this, and you know, these systems work a little bit differently here. Other than that, airplanes are airplanes, systems are systems, hydraulics, if you understand how fluid runs those like the components are the same there's just more of them and they're hidden new places um and that's probably the steepest learning curve is that yes i need to replace this part which is part of the hydraulic system and on uh on like a 210 you could probably find that in about five minutes without even looking in the book because there's nothing to that airplane if you do that with a dash eight you're going to be there for a few hours you can't do that <laughs> um and the books are a hell of a lot better for the M2 world. Um, now, why is that? It's more regimented. Um, part of the certification process is how you maintain things. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just a much more regimented environment that needs, I want to say, faster, more accurate information. I will say more modern small airplanes have really good books. Um, there's a lot less interpretive matter hmm. um so yeah I, I i do like that about the m2 world and i will say working vintage is really fun um i've worked on a couple waco biplanes from the late 30s they're really cool to work on but their manual is like less than 20 pages or something like that um there's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's standard practices and we have um, uh, AC4313, um, which is basically like, I don't know, about a two and a half inch, three inch thick book of standard practices for airplanes. And hmm. that book comes in handy with a lot of the vintage stuff just because there's no guidance anymore or manufacturers don't exist anymore. Um, or the STC that got in, installed in 1952 doesn't really exist and no one has paperwork things like that um so that like that becomes an interesting research project i'll say um but it does make it harder to work on the airplane i'm sort of touching on a point of something you you said earlier which is that regardless of is it automotive or is it aviation sort of turning a wrench is turning a wrench and i can imagine that yes going from slightly smaller aircraft to slightly bigger aircraft a lot of the principles are the same 
but I'm mindful that if you're sort of just increasing the scale, like the hydraulic system, how many feet is the actual are the actual hydraulic lines in a King Air or I mean, God, you should even like a like a Cherokee versus doing that in like a Dash Eight. Like it's just going to take more people to do it. So I can imagine as well that it's also learning that you can't necessarily do some of these things as a single like a single player sport. A lot of these jobs must require multiple people just by the pure scale of them. Yeah. More, more of the larger component replacements, I'll say need two people. A lot of the components are pretty manageable if you're relatively strong. Um, it tends to be more of like the awkward weighting and balance rather than an actual strength thing. Uh, the general recommendation is being able to lift somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds on your own. Um, if you can do that, you're probably okay. Prop laid on Dash 8 300 is 50-ish pounds. Um, they're relatively manageable. Um, access is better on the M2 stuff so far. Because um, if you install an access panel on a big airplane, you can make it big, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is really nice. There have been, like, there have been jobs that, yeah, it takes two people um, or you know, one end of whatever component is through this access hole. And then I got to be on the other side of the tail. So we have two people level lifts kind of thing. Um, but there's like, if you're with a decent crew and you have the tools, it's not. It definitely would be sort of a, a team environment. Even if you're all working on sort of separate tasks, as you've mentioned that you do that sometimes if a plane comes in overnight and you all sort of divvy it up, even then it's still a team sport. You want to make sure that what you're doing isn't that going to necessarily interfere with what someone else is doing even if they're on two different ends of the aircraft yep um that goes for small stuff too um one of the one of the shops i worked for we did a lot of avionics work and if i was uh if i was like rigging an elevator and it's like this airplane still has the yokes in and someone's trying to wire behind an instrument panel and i just start moving the elevator and bashing them in the face not a good time yeah um, and it's a small airplane, so they can get to me fast and you know prevent me from doing that further. Uh, however, they see fit. Um, larger airplane, you'll probably hurt someone a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so you're a little more careful. I mean, you have an aviation background through and through, whether it is through flying or whether it is through maintenance. Ultimately, how do you feel your work as a maintenance engineer influences your flying and your approach to it, and vice versa? Um. My favorite example of this is that I did not fuel an airplane until I went to AME school. Hmm. Um, I also, it's a fun rivalry between pilots and AMEs. Uh, no matter what anyone says, each side of the conversation respects you, but we will crack a joke at your expense. Um, but I made it to school and uh, one of the first days like, oh, anyone here a pilot? And a few of us thinking we were special and fun and cool. We're like, yeah, we fly planes. Um, and they just went, Raising don't ever, yeah, don't ever admit that again. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, I like, I continued to tell people I was a pilot, and then I realized that was a total mistake. Uh, because like we'd get to a standard practices class, like, okay, you know how to fuel an airplane, right? I go, no, I've never done that. I always have a line service guy. Um, mm. they go you have a pilot's license and you can't fuel an airplane. I'm like, I, I know the procedure. I've read about it in the book and like I've seen it done and stuff. Um, 
but I've never had to do it, you know? Um, yeah, I would be so... embarrassed to call myself a pilot if I can fuel the plane myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, they're like, okay, so you're the one who's going to walk through this as we like explain it to the class. Hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, stuff like that. And going to school to be an AME, I realized how poorly we train pilots. And that's like that's not a reflection of where I went to school um, or where I went to flight train. Uh, I've worked, so I've gone to that flight training unit. I've rented at four others since then. Um, and you speak to a lot of different pilots yeah. that have gone through different schools and ask them about sort of their systems and technical background as well. I deal with students a lot. Um, especially at the flight school because I love teaching people stuff. Um, and yeah, the, the way that we explain systems, the way that we teach systems, we almost teach it as if it is for the emergency checklist only. And even with that, oftentimes emergencies are sort of the, the other part of flight training that we'll run through a couple to make sure you get through your, your flight test, but you're probably not fully prepared for those either. Um, but I, I realized how much I didn't know as a PPL pilot. Um, and I, like, I went into that training program because it is so condensed. There are things that you will not get. Of course. Um, so like I never flew in the winter until I started renting and I, I made, like, I made the point of going, I'm going to go with, with, up with an instructor to do a winter check because it is different. Um, going the opposite direction I feel like I have more troubleshooting ability in the airplane if something is going wrong and I feel that understanding does help me when I need it but at the end of the day if I'm running an emergency checklist I can't do modifications to be like oh no this system runs this way so actually if I stop and think about it for a second I can do this I need to run like the vital action drill do the checklist and then if I have time I can get, I can get to the other thing and I can communicate and I can like work on different solutions to whatever the problem is. Um, so it, it is, it is important to keep them separate to a point. Um, but they do, they do complement each other. And that like, that's part of why I recommend like doing a correspondence course for pilots. Uh, like, um, the school is called ICS, the main one for Canada. And it's a good program and it will give you stuff to work with for when you have the time to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, as a peep, as someone who had gotten their PPL and was working on their commercial when, when we met, I, I've always been very welcome in maintenance hangers. Um, the flight schools that I've gone to, they're always very open to the students coming in and asking questions. And I've never been sort of dismissed or told that's a silly question. I find that that one thing about all the flight schools I've gone to is that their maintenance uh, buildings are always very uh, accessible and you can, you can just go in, not to pester people, but to, to show up with sort of thoughtful questions and a, a willingness to learn. And that's the attitude to go in. But understanding how much I didn't necessarily know, I didn't think I knew everything. I didn't pretend that I did, but realizing just how much I didn't know was surprising to me. I felt like I, I believed I had more of a comprehensive understanding than I actually did. And it wasn't really until you play your, your favorite game with everyone, which is yes. ask the pilot what this is. 
And I could look at that and go, I have no idea. Hey, what does that do? Um, (laughs) My my reply is always flux capacitor. Yep. And that generally gets a laugh and people go, okay, she clearly knows that that's why she's making a joke. And the answer is no, I I don't actually know. That's my sort of my lifeline answer of, hey, I, I don't understand this. My, uh, yeah, you, you've seen me play that game a lot and I do love it. Um, my other favorite one is doing walk arounds with people. Yeah. Because uh, as an AME, there are things that I learned about doing walk arounds that are more detailed, but I think keep me safer. Um, and yeah, like you and I have done walk arounds together too. Yeah. Um, and and the way like, I do walk arounds has changed having done one with you saying, okay, why aren't you looking at that? Or what else could you be looking at here? That was maybe not intuitive, maybe not taught to me. I don't think the way I taught was taught was wrong. I think that I was taught how to do a very thorough walk around, especially on a lot of sort of small baby planes, but yeah, having things pointed out to me of, okay, well, why aren't you checking that? Or could it hurt to also look at that again? You, you're not necessarily aware of what you don't know, but you're not unsafe for not knowing it. You just maybe not have it explained to you. Um, my favorite, my favorite of these was, uh, I was doing a walk around with a student and at the end of it, we we were both sitting in the airplane and I said, okay, close your eyes. And I shut the defrost vents on 172, turned the, uh, cabin heat off. And I said, okay, open your eyes. And I want you to defrost the windshield because it just got fogged up and there's a little bit of ice forming. And they pulled the cabin heat and they said, okay, we're good. And I said, no, defrost isn't open. And they went, what are you talking about? And I explained that those two little knobs up on the front of the glare shield were your defrost, uh, like they're little sliders. You have to open up the vent to actually make it work. Um, when I fly in the winter, I leave it open. Um, so if cabin heat's on, my defrost is running. But those like little things like that sometimes get missed by flight instructors, sometimes get missed by students, sometimes don't get explained during uh, like winter training briefings. Like just taking the little extra time to learn the system is, is important. As both a pilot and a maintenance engineer, what is something you'd really like pilots to know? I know it's really to sort of actually go and look at your systems, actually try and understand how these things all work, that they're not just independent parts that there's a a flow and that there's a reason why one piece is here versus another and sort of uh, a chain if uh, if we're sort of thinking about just kind of a system overall. What is sort of the big takeaway that you'd like pilots to know as a maintenance engineer? My name. Hmm. And I'd like to know yours. Don't walk walk into the hangar with with a problem and light a fire. Say, hello, my name is this. Came in off this airplane. How are you today? you're going to get a lot better service doing that. Um, I've explained that to multiple pilots being like, Hey, for, first, first of all, it's respect. Cause like we're a team, we're working together. I'd like to know your name, especially if I have to troubleshoot something with you. Um, but also if I have to leave and go do something and come back, I don't want to have to greet you by your bars. If, like if, if that's, if that's the only identity you have to me is someone that got dressed this morning and put some gold stripes on their shoulder. That's not a good thing. So like when things are safe, shake my hand and ask my name. Even just from a flight school perspective, again, knowing that I could always walk into the maintenance hangar, um, I would show up with, I mean, box of dozen donuts and a craft coffee 
And if that was the way that I sort of made my introduction, that's how, that's how you do it. Um, just, yeah, exactly. Having that rapport, knowing that if you have a question, um, because you already have that relationship, they know who you are, they know what you're working on, you know who they are, and you can ask them what they're working on. I think, yeah, that, that is an excellent point of actually trying to sort of build a rapport with the people that are doing the maintenance on your aircraft. Is it a private aircraft? Are you a student? Is it at a larger commercial operator? It doesn't hurt to get to know the people that are helping you because it's, you're all part of the same team. You all have the same common goal. You would just have different jobs on the team, but yeah, it's just sort of see each other as, if not equals, at least peers. And it's someone that you're working with on a team towards a sort of a common goal is key. Yeah. Um, you brought up private maintenance there. Um, because private maintenance is also sort of a service industry. Um, there's, I, I was sort of raised into it with like the yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, miss, whichever honorific was correct. Um, that's slowly going away. It's like too much of a gendered honorific for, for a lot of people. Um, but there is like that, that extra bit of deference from me, if you walked up and I was working on your airplane, um, most of them will crack a joke and be like, sir is my father, and then introduce themselves and they will ask my name. That I, I quite like that in private maintenance. Uh, it is worse in larger schools, and uh, I've found it to be worse with airlines. And my friends that work airline notice the same thing. That you're sort of just sort of seen as maintenance engineer number four, and that who you are and sort of what anything else that you have going on that day is irrelevant because here I am the pilot and I'm the priority. Yeah. Um, the same mm -hmm. way that you are like when you do that, you are just a captain or just an FO or just a flight attendant um, or a load master or whatever your position on the airplane is. If that's all you are to me, I know that uh, to you, I am that mechanic and one or two physical characteristics. Um, so it might be like the tall guy with the dark hair over there. The blonde um, one. The blonde one, whichever. Um, that, that's not the team. Know my name. We've touched on different parts of your flying so far, the different parts of your aviation career. It's gone in many different ways. You've had experience in M1, experience in M2, and ultimately, again, I think there's that, that element that you bring into all of it, whether it is your maintenance or your flying of wanting to sort of have that, that connection with someone. You are a team. This is my peer. We're working together. Um, but it hasn't always been easy. And what are some of the challenging, uh, what are some of the rather, what are some of the most challenging and what are the most rewarding aspects of your aviation journey so far? Um, yeah, I've had some stuff. Uh, obviously COVID was the big one that got a lot of us. Um, I, yeah, I was out for a few months and then I came back. Uh, I had to get a knee surgery at one point. That wasn't fun. Uh, that took me off the shop floor for a little bit. Uh, I did end up having a fall and screwing up my back. That took me off the shop floor for a little bit uh, and took a lot of work to get back to working. Um, but other than like those major things, the challenging stuff has been people. I don't think I've ever had a bad day because of an airplane. Mm. Um. I've had days where I've had to work harder because of an airplane and 
Uh, I don't care what anyone says. They all have their own personality uh, and some of them will hate you. Um, but yeah, I've, I've worked for some, I've worked with some difficult people. Uh, I've worked with some great people too. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say the challenging part has been some, some of the like interpersonal things around aviation. Um, the rewarding part, uh, there's a lot to me. I, I quite like the win of finishing a big job, getting an airplane out. Um, especially around flight schools. I, I always loved first solos. I always loved getting an airplane out for a flight test. Um, especially when someone was like specifically training, like, okay, we're going to flight test on this airplane. Um, and it's going to be out of maintenance on this day. And I'm able to help make that happen. I, I quite enjoyed that. You get to be part of the team. And it's, it's, uh, it's fun to watch people succeed in that environment. Frankly, what I'm hearing is that the interpersonal connections have both been the most challenging and the most rewarding. It's sort of a, a two-edged sword there. Yep. I mean, I, that's, that's any industry, I think. Mm -hmm. um, when I was working on cars, there was good people and bad people. When uh, like, I grew up farming, good and bad people, good and bad cows. There's a little bit of everything everywhere, right? So as you are very aware, Cameron, um, because you have to listen to every single guest that we have, you know that I ask this upcoming question to every single guest. Some of them love it. I think some of them don't love it as much um, because it's not always everyone's favorite, but it is my favorite. So it stands the test of time and you and I decide what gets on the show. So ultimately we keep asking it, but who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Uh, I'm going to be one of those people that has multiple. Um... You are allowed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I know some I... guests say like, can I have more than one? I'm like, yeah, like the, you're, you're allowed. There's no rules. Yeah. There's, there's no rules. And also it's my show. I'll do what I want. Uh, <laughs> and then you'll edit it how you want yeah um i'm gonna start with one outside of aviation um that's my high school shop teacher Dwayne Lowe. um he passed away last year but he's uh he taught me a hell of a lot about spinning a wrench um he convinced me to go to college to be an ame um and just made high school a much more livable place for me um, that's where it all began yeah he was, so he, uh, he counts he, through osmosis. Yeah, he, he was, he was, uh, he was a really cool dude. Um, uh, we would build vintage cars in, uh, in auto class for him. Like he'd bring in his project car. Um, so I got to work on uh, a 64 and a half Mustang. And if you're a Mustang junkie, you know what that means. Um, a Ford Model A. Uh, it was a 28 frame, but we built it as a 31 body. Uh, I dodged WC 12 truck on an 06 Durango frame, which was painted John Deere green to pull his vintage John Deere's around. Um, and then after I left, they did a Plymouth businessman's coupe from the war. Um, so I'll go with him. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say Bob Pearson. Um, He's, I didn't know he was like famous until far too late into my life. Um, he was just an old dude at the curling club. Um, and yeah, just like someone I saw all the time because I spent a lot of time at a curling club. Um, 
I remember after my first navigation class, first time I took ground school when I was 12, uh, I went to the curling club um, and I was waiting for mom or dad to be done a game. I was sitting in one of the big chairs and I had this map out and I was like looking at all the different um, symbols on the map and like learning the legend and going through stuff. And uh, he came over and sat down and goes, I think that's right where we need to go. And just pointed at the map, some random spot. And I was like, Bob, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> um, and he sat down and he explained he was a pilot. Uh, didn't mention that he flew the Gimli glider. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was like, you know, just hanging out and, uh, you know, talked about airplanes for a little bit. And then he went on his way. I think he had a game to go to or something. And uh, months later, Mayday is on TV. And there's Bob sitting in his garden. Um, he lived across the road from uh, one of my best friends from childhood. Um, and as most airline captains do, just had like a tennis court. Um, <laughs> uh, it's far in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so like we'd go play tennis at his place. Uh, and he's sitting like right there. I'm like, wait, that's Bob? <laughs> um and so yeah like i see you at the curling club the next week i'm like hey man you were on tv <laughs> which <it's> time like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and yeah we talked about that and uh somehow that's not the most interesting airline story the man has um he's he's just an incredible guy he knows how to tell a story like no one else um rivals you laura um <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> yeah like he he can tell a story um but yeah any anytime uh anytime i've uh i i come home from school or anything like that i'd see him he'd always ask how things are going uh like offer words of encouragement things um one of my professors at school had met him during the book tour after the gimli glider and took him sailing bob loves sailing um and of course we watched the mayday episode at school and i'm sitting there like oh bob yeah i know bob because <laughs> i'm one of those um and uh the professor's like wait you you, you know i'm like yeah he's curling club like since i'm small. well duh the curling club <laughs> that's just bob man <laughs> um and uh it's like can can i send you a note to bring to him okay so I brought Bob this note and like, this guy took you sailing like not long after the glider and told me to give you this. And he read it, he went, right. He took us out in Vancouver. And I was like, wait, you remember this guy? So I had to like, I had to run a couple notes back and forth for them. Um, that was, that was a fun one. Um, but he's, he's a really cool guy. He's been really supportive of, of, uh, of all I've done. Uh, I'm also going to say uh, Stuart McCauley, uh, who has been on the show. Mm -hmm. um, I met Stuart at my first job in aviation. Uh, he was a DOM. And he helped get me back into the AME Association of Ontario. Um, he's a big supporter of mental health in aviation. And yeah, just like has has always had time to offer me words of wisdom and uh, 
has been like the closest thing I've had to formal mentorship has been, uh, has been Stuart. Yeah. He was, uh, because he was the, the DOM, he like, we worked together for a while and, uh, with aviation, everything like ebbs and flows, there's lots of work. There's no work. There's general aviation is kind of like that. Um, things got slow at the shop that I was at and, uh, a few of us were laid off, uh, temporarily. Um, so Stuart was actually in the room the first time I ever lost a job. Um, and yeah, he was, he was really supportive about that because like everyone in aviation has had that cycle happen um, or will or will. Um, and yeah, he, he saw that I had never experienced that before and, um, that, that I could have used a little, um, a little help. And yeah, he was, he was really important in that. We had the great opportunity of having Stuart on as a guest relatively early on to the show. And he was, he was so thoughtful. He brought a perspective that we hadn't had any before. He was not our first maintenance engineer, but I think he was definitely one of the most memorable that we've had. And yeah, no, he, he just seemed so approachable and thoughtful really, really genuinely thoughtful um, and has been rightfully uh, celebrated through the Ontario AME Association for um, all the incredible work that he does in terms of just being so so transparent and vulnerable and really putting that out there to the maintenance engineering community all over Canada, but particularly through the Ontario AME Association. Um, you sort of touched on the fact that Stuart is the closest thing you have to a mentor, really sort of a, a sort of a formal mentor through aviation. How do you think having him in your corner that way maybe changed things for you when it came to starting out in aviation? Aside from just being maybe someone to turn to when you got that that first time uh, layoff. So uh, I started the company before he did, and I'm I'm going to say one other thing about Stuart as uh, like as a speaker and everything. If you see him on a speaking schedule, please go. Um, uh, I have seen rooms go silent when he talks, uh, which doesn't really happen at a lot of conventions, right? There's always someone whispering to someone in the back corner and um, things like that. But for a lot of people, he's the first person that they've heard talk about mental health as an AME. And the way he discusses it and the conversations he has and the way that because we're, we're, we're all trained on the dirty dozen and everything like that um and we have those conversations that are sort of mental health adjacent mm-hmm. the way that he brings people into the conversation of mental health is something uh, i think is really important um i'm glad to see that more people are now joining that conversation and moving it forward um, but if you have the chance to see him speak, please do. I will second that. I've not been in the room, but just in getting to speak one-on-one with Stuart and coordinating an episode with him, I can see how he would have that, that effect on a room. So I would, I'd recommend it just based on that alone. Yeah. Um, how did, yeah. How did his mentorship change how I did things? Um, so yeah, I started at that company before he did, and then he came in as the DOM. Um, he was really cool to work with. He has uh, a big variety of experience from flight schools, private maintenance, float planes, um, all sorts of stuff. So when I was trying to learn and I was trying to like figure out the path of 
okay, I'm working my way towards an M1 and this is sort of what the job is going to look like. And this is sort of the path he was, uh, he was there to, you know, give a reality check when it was needed. Um, uh, and, you know, provide options and say, well, it might not go that way, but, you know, you're doing these things, you have these training options. Um, here are some other ways you can, you can structure how you work. Um, you know, there's a more efficient way of doing this job, or there's a more efficient way of looking at annuals. Um, just bringing that experience in was, was really, really good. Um, I will say that first job I worked um, was an excellent crew. I still highly recommend them to uh, my private maintenance clients and flight schools and everyone. Um, they, yeah, they were a great crew to work with. They were a great crew for training. Um, they're one of the reasons that I take extra time with apprentices. If I have the time to teach you something, I will. Um, because they did that for me and I learned a lot from them. Um, they also had uh, more of a customer service mentality because we were doing majority private maintenance, not commercial stuff. Um, so their, their sort of values on treating clients and how to handle, um, how to handle a client's airplane and everything like that, that, that was really good training. And that was, uh, Stuart was heavily involved in that as well, because his, his background with helping guide private owners through different maintenance things gives him a different perspective, right? Mm -hmm. You and I both have what I call the too much gene, which is that we like to do too much of everything, um, whether it be involved in our community, whether it be through sort of creating projects for ourselves, you and I have a joint too much gene. It manifests in different ways, but in your spare time, you volunteer with the Webster Memorial Cup, which is Canada's top general aviation pilot competition. How did you first hear about Webster and get involved with the competition? So I heard, I've, I first heard about Webster a while ago. Um, I believe it while I believe it was while I was a member at a flight uh, of a flying club in Southern Ontario. Um, I didn't have a recent flight test, so I never applied, but it was always sort of um, in my head is when I finished my commercial license, I'd go do it. Um, I have not finished my commercial license. I've not applied. Um, and then out of the blue, uh, I think you called me um, and you had been approached to uh, do some consulting with them and basically said, cool, can I bring this guy? Um, <laughs> we, do every, we do so many aviation things yeah. together. I can't take this opportunity on my own. He has to come in too. You can have me, but he has to come in too. Yeah. Um, we're basically like in Step Brothers, where they do the job <laughs> interview together. That's us. Uh, That's us for a lot of things. Yeah, I think uh, we're here to mess stuff up. Is very, very much sort of our approach to, to doing different things in aviation together. Yeah, um, we will just kick your door and have a good time. Um, but anyways, we uh, we were invited to to present some some things for them and uh apparently they liked us because we're still there um and yeah um 
I think it's I think it's a really fun program. And as uh, I've I've done like a lot of marketing research and things for the program, so I get to go into history books and old newspapers. And um, if you have anything from the Webster Trophy, especially in like the '30s, '40s, anything like that like send me an email please admittedly um, <laughs> if you have anything about webster pre-2000 please email us yes um for the most part the competition was run on paper uh even in the days of computers so uh records move um some of them have ended up in different museums so i'm trying to get access to different libraries and archives and things like that um a lot of things have ended up in personal collections. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of very cool things, I should say. Uh, and yeah, I'm, 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 I'm trying to bring a lot of that back together. Um, centralize a lot of the information, photos, um, stories from the original competitions, things like that. Um, just to sort of preserve a piece of history and uh, hopefully help the modern competition um, both you know, be able to honor its past and move forward with some cool stuff. Looking ahead to sort of the future of Webster and some of the modernization within the competition, uh, knock on wood, everything goes according to plan. This year should be the 90th and this year is the 90th anniversary and hopefully our competition in Kelowna this upcoming August um, comes together fully. But what are you most excited about in terms of the lead up towards the competition? Ooh, um... So uh, our process is really cool. Um, a lot of things are done blind. So uh, judges don't know names. Um, things are based entirely on score. There is none of this who you know. There's no interview to get in. It is about being a damn good pilot. Um, and from the beginning, the, the original announcements from 1931 um, less than a month after the namesake John C. Webster died, were that this was going to be a competition about airmanship. Mm-hmm. Um, and all are welcome. And all are welcome. Um, learn how to apply online. But it, it's, it's all about airmanship. So I'm, I'm interested to see those. Uh, I personally won't see the scores come in. One of our judges will. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see who we select. Uh, I'm interested to see the the flight test and the sim test come together. Uh, one of our judges works with Redbird. Um, I don't know what's going to be on the test. I don't know what's going to be on the flight test. Um, or what interview questions you're asked. Or I, I won't know the interview questions. Uh, I haven't even tried the Nav Canada exam. I like, I, uh, I, I truly, I am not, in that because we keep the judging parts of that separate um so yeah I'm, I'm interested to see everyone come together in Kelowna and uh learn a little more about how the back end of the competition runs as we keep all of our secrets appropriately arranged um yeah it's it's gonna be a cool week um I've never been out west before so that'll be That'll be exciting for me. 
I say, as you're saying it now, I realize, yeah, for a team that meets fairly regularly and is very open with each other, we do have a lot of secrets about exactly what each one of us does or the sort of the process for how things come together is pretty, uh, is pretty secret. I guess that's our way of um, the creators of Coca-Cola. They can't all fly on the same plane together. I guess they just make sure that we have all the information divvied up. And there's yeah. like there's there are central repositories of this knowledge. Yes. Um but uh that's that's a very limited thing for a reason, and that's because we want to run a fair competition. Um that's true to what it was created for. Mm-hmm. Um and I think sort of true to the vision of what uh John Webster's peers felt was correct when they helped start this program. In addition to Webster, we've mentioned this throughout the entire episode, you're also the producer of the show. I know what I do when it comes to sort of producing any given episode. And I joke that I am clearly so self-important that I've never really bothered to sort of get into the nitty gritty on your end. I just know that I give you the recording and say, here's what, here's where we are on task. Here's where we are not on task. Definitely cut out that reference to my cat. Um, on any given episode but sort of really kind of walk me through the process from your perspective when it comes to give any given episode coming to fruition so yeah general process uh laura will uh book a guest um sometimes i'll do uh some writing for questions or research um but laura leads the way on that as well um you book the time record everything and uh, at some point, I will get a text saying, uh, this recording's done. Um, I've recorded the bio and like this file is, is ready for you kind of thing. And that text usually arrives at 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Um, sleep schedules don't exist, I think, for either of us. <laughs> Um, there was a, a fun part of the pandemic a very early days when we were both uh, furloughed and you would be getting messages from me at 5 a.m and you think oh that's so cool Laura got up early but really what had happened is that you were waking up at 5 a.m and I hadn't gone to bed by 5 a.m yep um <laughs> yeah uh there was a lot of days like that there was uh, months <laughs> like that yeah. <laughs> many years ago now when we were when we were young yeah um but yeah, so the recording files are done. Um, I download them. Uh, depending on what needs to be done, I'll use one of two programs, either Cubase or Audacity. If you're getting into podcasting and you need some form of mixing software, Audacity is free and it's really powerful. Um, it does pretty much everything I need. Cubase is only for like hardcore stuff where I need big tools. Yeah, throw everything in Audacity, um, which, yeah, I'll do uh, noise reduction. If uh, early on, if you listen to some of our earlier episodes, you will have heard me go absolutely crazy with compressors. Um, That's, uh, I I think the phrase you like to use is that it sounds like we're talking to someone at the bottom of a lake. Yeah, every now and then there's sort of of a, a bottom of a lake from from Mars sound to some of our early episodes and also yeah. my inability to ask any follow-up questions to what we had written. Yeah. We were learning. Um, it was a process. We 
we are constantly working to improve the show. So we are still learning. Yeah. Uh, Laura timestamps everything. Um, one of the big sort of core concepts that we try to follow is um, giving as much creative control to a guest as possible. We might try to ask questions based on what we can find about you online or the project that we're interested in or your LinkedIn. We do vet everyone. Um, but at the end of the day, you're the best person to tell your story. So um, if there are things that you say outside of what we can use in the episode that you say to Laura, um, she'll make sure those are cut out. Um, she might make sure that we put emphasis on something or um, just just try to help you tell your story. So I will get pretty detailed timestamps and notes um, on sort of the base of what we want. And then I work from that. We never try and change what someone's saying, but we'll make sure that as the way I word it to our guests is that if you're taking the time to share your time to share your time and story with us then you should have final say in how that is presented. And if you misspeak or think to me afterwards, you know, I didn't like how I answered that. Could we do it again? We're going to find a time because ultimately we want this to be a final product for our guests that they like as much as we do. Yeah. Um, See, so yeah, I'll, I'll take those timestamps, um, stitch everything together. Every now and again, I have to like pull a swear word out or like a dog barking. Um, They're mostly me swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, yes. Um, yeah, I go through that. Uh, I make sure the audio is pretty clean. Um, if you're someone that breathes really heavy, I'll probably pull out a bunch of your breathing noise. Um, I have favorite guests for like speech patterns and things. I don't know why. Some of you just talk nice. Uh, <laughs> um, and some of you breathe weird and I notice. Uh, I recognize it can be a very vulnerable thing listening to your recorded voice. Um, number one, because you're not used to how your voice sounds, but also because you might not recognize that the way you take a pause is an um, or when you start speaking, you have like a, um, which, whichever like vocal tick or anything like that, I'll usually help you out. Um, yeah, do that kind of thing. Uh, our intro and outro were cut when we started the show. I haven't changed them since. I don't have to do the music every time. Um, throw that together. Music, which was graciously done by Riley Searle for us. Yes. Um, Riley was awesome for that. And after that, it goes for review. Um, depending on the episode, it'll go to uh, Laura, the guest. Uh, the guest's company or any other organization that needs to approve of it. Um, our standing record is four departments of a company. Uh, if you are a company listening to this being like, hey, we should work with these guys, please just have, have a spokesperson. Just give us one person. We, we, would, we would love to work with you. We um, don't do sponsored content, but uh, if you're cool, we probably got room in our schedule. Uh, but yeah, uh, so... Once it's done review, I schedule the release in Podbean, um, which is a pretty decent app. It's not that expensive. Uh, I quite like it. Um, schedule the release. It goes out. 
and then we release our uh, post on Instagram, which is either Laura or I, depending on schedule, um, which is why it usually happens during coffee or lunchtime. <laughs> Don't give away all our, our secrets, Cam. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's why the post doesn't go up at 8 a.m., because we're probably at work or asleep. Um, <laughs> I'm sleeping. Yeah. Um, just in the middle of, well, I suppose I could release them like in the middle of night shift. Um, oh, get it. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get some podcast drops at 1 a.m. Yeah. Hi. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, pretty much the series of events. The ones that I've hosted or been a host on, I'll do the timestamping and stuff too. Cause I was there. Um, yeah. It's a, I think it's a pretty decent setup we got. For two people that had no background in doing anything like this, I think we had some very ambitious and lofty goals when we first started the podcast. Um, I always point out um, Women in Aviation Week. We call it Mad Marchness because generally, generally during that week, uh, during that month, we double our production schedule. So we go from two episodes um once every two we go from yeah one episode every two weeks to an episode a week and then for the actual week of women in aviation week worldwide which is always the week where march 8 falls somewhere along the week we did one episode a day for i think last year it was 11 days straight and then this year it was i think we we decided to curve it down to eight and just make it slightly easier for ourselves um figuring this all out, how we were going to do it, how to best record. I know we went through a different, few different uh, avenues of trying to find how we could easily record with people. Uh, I always find it odd when you see podcasts that have a video component as well, and they're in the same room, because we have never, I have never been in the same room as any of our guests, even if we're in the same city. Yeah. Um, thanks, pandemic. Um, <laughs> thanks, Zoom. Uh, yeah. Going back to the fact that you and I do too much um, and don't have a lot of downtime and are so sort of focused on aviation and that is kind of the, this at the center of so much of what we do. What are some of the activities you enjoy outside of aviation when you take a break from all of this? Uh, so I was really bad for a while at not having hobbies outside of aviation. Um, I, I had some stuff growing up and then uh, I did airplane things for a while. Um, and I'm slowly reminding myself that time off is a good thing. Um, I really enjoy fishing. Uh, it's a great hobby from my childhood. And yeah, I like going out and it's calming. It's a good time. Um, uh, it is not calming when Cameron takes me and uh, another one of our friends out because we are, have no background fishing and I constantly get my line stuck somewhere or snagged. So it's, it's not so much relaxing when I go it's very much like a dad taking their kid <laughs> fishing for the first time but I like teaching people stuff so it's really fun for me because I get to teach one of my friends how to fish and I was very proud when I caught that perch <laughs> you were um that was, that was a good day, <laughs> was a good day. <laughs> yeah um I, I enjoy a lot of really like outdoors things um shooting sports uh I do like a little bit of hunting here and there. Uh, I'm working on becoming a better uh, canoeist. Um, 
and I'm working on doing more hiking um, just to spend more time like away from everything. I think that was one thing a lot of people recognize as being important uh, through the pandemic was, especially if you're in aviation, you got to have something outside of aviation just to keep you a little bit sane. Uh, a lot of people clearly tuned into that well before the pandemic, but I think it was understood more so throughout the industry once we, or rather almost all of us had a little bit more time on our hands. Um, yeah, it's very healthy to have things outside of aviation um, just to go and sort of be pensive or relax. Uh, I will note that you still do a lot of those things with people that you meet in aviation, but it's always fun to do uh, things with people that you know through aviation through different avenues, and then you can go and have a day of not aviation and just really focus on sort of the, the connections and the personal side of aviation that uh, is so strong within the industry. And I'll, I'll add, make your hobby not travel. Um, travel is amazing. And if you work in aviation and you have access to standby tickets or buddy passes or whatever, um, awesome. Do travel the globe. Um, but if the two things you do are fly around a lot and then fly around a lot, um, that might not be the most constructive break for you. And also when you hit stuff like the pandemic or you get laid off or furloughed or anything like that, and you lose access to your hobby because you don't have Zed fares anymore, or you don't have that, um, it can be a more unstabilizing thing for you. So if you do have travel as a main hobby or something like that, try to have something at home as well. What advice do you have for someone considering a career as a maintenance engineer? And I will say you've had the benefit of listening to me ask this question to several other maintenance engineers on the show. So I'm wondering if you sort of have a combination of advice that you've heard from them and also advice from your own experiences as well. I like how this question usually ends or starts with the person being like, okay, if you're interested, do it. Um, and yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's a really fun career. Uh, you get to learn a lot. You get to be a lot of different things, sort of trades wise, I guess. Um, because really as like, as, as an AME, I'm a plumber, an electrician, a sheet metal tech, an HVAC tech, uh, small engine, large engine. Uh, you might be doing non-destructive testing. Uh, you get to run airplanes and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's a good time. Um, do your research on tools. Most colleges have a minimum tool list. They will give it to you. Um, go ahead and buy those things. I, uh, I decided when I was starting school that I was going to buy expensive tools. Um, I don't regret that. I quite like the toolkit I have. Um, you don't necessarily have to. Uh, there are some, there are some brand names that exist because they're good. And there's some brand names that exist because someone decided a brand name was going to be a brand name. So like there, there are a couple tools that I will recommend by model number. Um, snap-on ratcheting screwdriver everyone has one for a reason um same thing with the 72 tooth a quarter inch ratchet from snap-on they're worth it they, they truly are um but other than that most tools have a lifetime warranty uh if they don't they are so cheap that you shouldn't even look at them um <laughs> uh, like i i know people whose entire toolboxes are princess auto or canadian tire 
or whatever. Like you can do it uh, affordably and upgrade later. Um, take a writing class, please. Um, good communication is a big part of the job, especially once you're licensed. Uh, even when you're unlicensed, being able to accurately deal with manuals, um, proper emails, things like that, uh, especially these days with everyone being really connected. Uh, like you might be troubleshooting some, something with someone by text um, or like whatever messaging system happens to exist. Um, so being good at that is a, is a very big thing. I think a few of our guests have said, like, do your research at schools. You have options. If, if your focus is on finding accredited colleges, you will find them very easily. Try to find one with the right culture for you. Um, that'll go the same for when you start looking for jobs. There are going to be some excellent employers, and there's going to be some pretty crappy ones. Good pay doesn't equal bad treatment like it, it it doesn't cancel it out now would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far i thought about this one i really did um and i know there's no rules and i could list as many things as i want i i have a lot of memories that i hold really close um i've met a lot of really special people I've gotten to work with some cool people. I've had um, amazing opportunities to fly places, do stuff um, with friends and family and all that kind of thing. I'm not going to pick a favorite. And I don't think I ever want to. Mm. Um, I just, I just want to hang out with my friends. Well, we want to keep hanging out with you too both in and out of aviation. There could be more fishing. Yes. Oh, we're, we're going fishing. I just want to catch a muskie. You know this. <laughs> I do know this. I know that a muskie is supposedly the fish of 10,000 casts, and I'm pretty sure catching that perch, I was pretty darn close to that, so I'm due for a muskie anytime. <laughs> anytime, yeah. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Um, I'm mostly on Instagram, um, which is at GloveZero. Um, which is the name I earned as a glider cadet. Uh, I am on LinkedIn. I'm not on there very often. Um, I do have some updating to do on it as well. Um, you can just find that by searching my name. Uh, my last name is spelled B-O-E-K-H-O-F-F. -F. That's the hard part for everyone. Everyone adds R's. Um, I don't know why. Uh, and as mentioned earlier, uh, I do do some work with the Webster Trophy. I do recommend you check them out. They're on Facebook and Instagram at Webster Trophy uh, and uh, www.webstertrophy.ca. Um, a lot of the social media posts, actually all the social media posts you see are Laura and I. Uh, if you message them, we're the ones that get it. You know, um, if you're eligible to apply, please do. It's a really cool program. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll get to meet us in Kelowna. Normally at this point, I get to say, we will be sure to have those links. However, I get to say this time, you will be sure to have those links in the episode description for our I, listeners. 
I will make sure all of my links are in the episode description if you think I'm a cool person still. Uh, <laughs> for now. <laughs> for now. <laughs> Cameron Bokoff, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Laura. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.